Welcome to the weekly service message from the Crossbridge Church. Look for us on the web at www.crossbridgeny.org. Join us now as Pastor Nate Young delivers this week's message. Uh, Go ahead and open your Bibles up to Malachi. We're in the third chapter of Malachi already, uh, which means, or actually the end of the third chapter, which means we only have one more sermon in this series on Malachi. Uh, This has gone by very quickly. I can't believe how quickly the year has even gone by. I mean, this week is Thanksgiving week already, uh, which is one of my favorite times of of year. Uh, It's one of those times in which uh, it is socially acceptable to eat yourself into a coma, right? I'm already planning out my day, the clothes I'm going to wear, where I'm going to fall asleep after the meal, uh, all of these things. Uh, are considered good. Um, Before we launch into the sermon, I want to provoke your thinking a little bit in in terms of uh, something in this world that's often referred to as brand loyalty. Um, What essentially this means is that there are certain places that you're going to choose to spend your money, and that companies are going to work very hard to get you to believe a certain thing about their company that encourages you to continue to spend your money with them over and over again. Uh, For those of you who know our family, you would know that we are very loyal to one brand in particular. Uh, That is the brand of Chick-fil-A. Uh, for one main reason, it's basically Jesus chicken, right? Uh, they have a great product. But when I think about Chick-fil-A, I don't just think about their food. I think about their service. They are about the only fast food restaurant that you can go to where when you say thank you to the server, they respond with, my pleasure. Now, their chicken sandwiches and their, their chicken is pretty good, but Popeye's has got a real good chicken sandwich too, don't they? Have you guys had Popeye's chicken sandwich? Oh boy, it is delicious. And then there's a new place that I got introduced to that's called PDQ's. Have you had this yet? Mmm. But I will never be disloyal to Chick-fil-A, primarily because my wife won't let me because she likes Chick-fil-A. But there is something about the name that they have developed in terms of what they stand for that encourages me to go back to them time and time again. The quality of their food, the level of their service, the cleanliness of their restaurant. And they have gone to great lengths in the way that they train their employees, the way that they present themselves, to have you think about the name Chick-fil-A. Now, Chick-fil-A has not paid me to say any of these things, but if they're watching online, I would love a year of free chicken sandwiches. But this, this idea should influence the, the way that we think about a lot of things. You see, if we're going to continue to give our business to certain companies, we need to trust them. We need to think that they're offering us a service that is good. But there's something even greater than that that we need to consider. You see, if we're going to serve God with our lives, there must be a view of Him that we have that is greater than anything else. There must be a trust that we have in Him and His character that is unlike anything else that we would trust. 
anything else that we would give our attention to. So here's the, the thesis for today's sermon. Here's what I think is the main points coming out of this particular sermon. We must see God as worthy of our lives. How we see God has a lot to do with how we see His character and His name. And if we don't see God's character correctly, we can fall into the trap of following God with the goal of getting something from Him. Now, let, let these words register in your mind. The goal of the Christian life is not the gifts that God gives, but God Himself. The, the goal of the Christian life you see, it's not what God can provide for you in terms of gifts, but He is worthy to be served and followed because His name is the name above all names. His character is pure and holy above all else. So in His very nature, He is the only one that is worthy of us being completely and totally loyal to. It's with this in your hearts and minds, I want to encourage you to stand with open Bibles with a reading from Malachi chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. I'd invite you, if you're able, to stand with me for a reading from the Word of God. Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 13, going through the end of the chapter in verse 18, says this, "'Your words have been hard against me,' says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you?' You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping His charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. This is a reading from the Word of God. You may be seated. This section of verses is really divided into two sections. The, the first is chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. And what I'm going to suggest to you that this particular passage is teaching us is that false believers, those who profess to love God, only use God for their own desires. What we're seeing here in verses 13 through 15 is the final dispute between God and the Israelites in this book of Malachi. And it might actually be the most heinous of all the accusations they have brought against God. The Lord even says that these words they have spoken are hard words, that they have, in fact, dared to criticize Him sharply. Now, think about this for a moment. The very one who created them with the ability to speak is now being attacked by the words from the very mouths that he created. And every parent in this room can probably sympathize with what's happening here. 
I don't know, actually, maybe you're a better parent than I am, but when one of my kids starts to talk back to me, or, or even worse, tries to act like they're an expert on something that they've never even done before, uh, the phrase comes to my mind, I brought you into this world, I can take you out of it. That might pop into my head. And when God interacts with these people, He literally created them and has every right to do as He wishes. And instead of just wiping them out or punishing them at this point, He still calls out to them and gives them a chance to turn from their sin and turn back to Him. He is, in fact, helping them. And yet they keep pushing His loving hand away. If you don't have kids, maybe you can sympathize with this. Have you ever moved to help someone? You've started to help someone with something that that they need help with, and they start to criticize the way that you're helping them? And again, maybe, maybe you're a better person than I am, but from that point forward, how many times are you going to try and help them? Zero. You're right, John. But brothers and sisters, I am so glad that God is perfectly loving. He continues to love us and call us to Himself even after the hundreds of times we have pushed Him away or sinned against Him with our words and actions. But what is this sharp criticism that the people have hurled at the Lord? They say that it is actually vain to serve Him meaning that there is no purpose in serving Him. And they make this even clearer with what their next statement is. They say there is no benefit in in two things. One, there's no benefit in following the Lord. And number two, in mourning over their sin. Mourning in in verse 14 is a phrase that describes the type of repentance that that should follow the sin that the nation of Israel has committed against God. They seem to be expressing severe doubt about what we had just read in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Look back up just a a couple verses in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Remember, we, we, we saw this last week. It says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. They don't seem to believe that God will actually provide for those that obey his word. And instead, they're building an argument against the Lord. In a moment, we're going to see the conclusion of their argument, but here's the argument. Here's what they're constructing against the Lord. If we are going to serve God, it is only fair that we get something out of it. And at this point, they're saying, we aren't getting what we want. Let me tell you what is at the very core of this is a word that you may have heard before, but maybe have not thought about it in this way. At the very core of this is something called legalism. Legalism is the idea, if I just work hard enough and I obey the commands of God long enough, 
then he actually owes me something. Even though the Bible is full of passages like Psalm 127, verse 1, it says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. This passage tells us that you can't actually build anything in your life that will last that isn't done in the power of the Lord and part of his plan to bring him glory. And yet they think they can do enough to force God to do something for them. And let's just clear this up to make sure that we're abundantly clear here. God doesn't owe us anything except for one thing. He owes us eternal punishment in hell for our sins. That's what God owes us. So we, we must stop trying to force his hand with our good works to get him to do things. And instead of functioning in a legalistic way where I'll obey and God will bless me, we need to just enjoy the grace that God gives us through Jesus Christ. You can't work your way to God or get him to do anything apart from his grace. So experience the freedom of not being afraid if we've done enough to get stuff from God. And instead, just bask in the grace of his love and care for us. But the people in the book of Malachi are convinced that not only is the promise in Malachi chapter 3 verse 10 not true, but in fact, the exact opposite is true. They mention a group of people they call the arrogant. These people are godless, rebellious people. And they say that it is these people who are blessed, not the ones that follow God, but the ones who are against God. And not only are they blessed and prosper, this text tells us that they actually test God with their sinful lives and escape any kind of punishment. Again, this is a reference to 310, where God calls on his people to live according to his law, to see that his promise of blessings is true. But this time, they say God has promised to punish evil and fails to keep his word. But if we're honest... They're bringing up an issue that many of us at times have struggled with. The issue is the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous. Or another way I've heard this talked about is actually in the form of a question. It's worded this way. If God is good, then why do bad things happen to good people? And if God is good, why does he allow wicked people to do bad things and get away with it? And if we're honest for, with each other, there's probably a moment in your life where you've asked this question. Even this past week, I, I was tempted to struggle with this some. I, I have a special place in my heart for the people from Iran. We prayed for the Sindhis this morning, but the Sindhis in Damascus, one of their main ministries in Athens, Greece, is to help refugees who are fleeing Iran for any number of reasons. And so we've, we've had some special time um, with them. And you see what's happening in 
that country. And if you're not familiar, let me catch you up to speed. In September, a 22-year-old woman named Masa Amani died three days after being taken into custody by what's called Iran's morality police. Apparently, the issue is she wasn't wearing what she was supposed to wear correctly, so they took her into custody to reprimand her, and while in custody, she was killed. And since that time, over 15,000 protesters have been detained, and 351 of them have been killed since the protests have begun. Two weeks ago, 227 members of Iran's 290-seat parliament signed an open letter to the country's judiciary asking it to issue death sentences for those protesters who had been arrested. And the reason for that is they're saying that they are enemies of God. These people are claiming that God wants these 15,000 people executed for what they have done. And I, I, we see things like this unfolding around the world, and we, we want to cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, what in the world is going on? How does this in any way, shape, or form fit into your plan? There are whole portions of the Bible that grapple with this issue, like Psalm 73. It, it's a whole psalm where Asaph struggles with this issue. He says in Psalm 73, 3, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I mean, what he's saying here is that the temptation for us is going to envy those who are far off from God but seem to be prospering in this life. That we can fall into the trap of wanting to be distant from God if we can have a little prosperity in this life. Or even the whole book of Job where a righteous man seems to have everything taken away in spite of his righteous life. And this seems to drive them to this conclusion. Since God doesn't punish evil, then what is the point of following him? Let's just do what we want. If he doesn't punish evil and reward righteousness, let's just give up. And let's just say, if they're right, what are we doing here? Church is like the worst hobby you could ever have if we're just doing this for fun. If they're right. But there are some things that they know that they seem to have forgotten. They know that their ancestors were punished for this line of reasoning. Psalm 95, verses 9 through 10 says this, When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, There are people who astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. They know what God did to bring the nation of Israel out of Egyptian captivity. They know the wondrous works that he did. They know that their, their ancestors were punished in the wilderness for, for 40 years for their rebellion against God. They know that God punishes evil. They know this even because their nation was used by God to punish other wicked nations for the sin against the Lord. 
Moses tells them this in, in some of his final words before they cross the Jordan River to enter the promised land. He tells them in Deuteronomy 9.5, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Even though these people know that the Lord has done, they know what He has done and what He can do, they still think their way is the best. But this aspect of denying the very nature and goodness of God did not end in the Old Testament. It, it continues in the New. And it's actually a hallmark of false teachers. Peter describes them this way in 2 Peter 2, chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. You see, brothers and sisters, we must be very careful to not think such small thoughts about God, that, that He can be controlled by our behavior, that He will let evil go unpunished. Instead, we must live in such a way that God will one day reward us according to His good grace and punish those who deny Him. And when things work out differently than we would want, or we see evil in the world, we must know that God is working out a greater plan than we can understand right now, and that God is good. In the second section of this particular passage in verses 16 through 18, what we're going to see is that true believers only want God. Up to this point in the book, you may have started to wonder if there is any hope for these people. Will they turn away from their sin and turn back to God? You almost start to feel like you're watching someone throw their life away and, in a sense, throw their eternity away. The people that God has been dealing with here in this book are far from Him, and they appear to not want Him. But, but maybe you're here today, and God feels far away from you, and the path to God seems hidden or impossible. You might even be saying to yourself, I, I can't believe I'm here at church, or, or that I'm listening to this sermon. I, I am too sinful. But we must see ourselves for who we are and see God for who He is. The Israelites of Malachi don't want to admit that they have sinned against God. They have questioned God and even accused Him of being sinful by not punishing evil, when in fact it is them that are sinful and love evil. But isn't this true of every one of us at some point in our life? But I hope at this particular point in the book, with these words in verse 16, that you begin to, sense, begin to sense a hope for these people and a hope for us. This passage tells us that at the same time, 
all of these disputes are happening. There is a group of people that see what is going on and want no part of being at odds with God. And we see a beautiful thing happen. As they turn away from their sin, the Lord pays attention to them. The Lord hears their plea for forgiveness. We've got to see the beauty of this picture. These broken, dirty, little people see God for who He is, and they see themselves for who they are, and they cry out to God, and He comes down to look upon them in their poor state, and He listens to their cries. Brothers and sisters, the God of the universe, the Lord of armies, will turn his attention to you when you cry out to him from a heart of worship and faith. This causes this sense, or it should cause this sense of amazement to well up in our hearts to know that the God of the universe cares enough about me that he cares enough about you to hear you when you cry out to him. This text tells us that those who cry out to God, he doesn't just listen to them, but a record of them is made in heaven. Now, let's be clear, God doesn't have to write anything down. I'm at this stage, and maybe you can sympathize with me. If I don't write it down, it's gone. If there's something I have to remember, if I don't put pen to paper or leave a note in my phone or something of that nature, it's not going to get done. But God's never going to be like that. God doesn't have to write things down in His plan or to remember to do them. He never forgets anything and he knows everything. In theology, this is called God's omniscience. It means he is all-knowing. But this is a word picture to help us understand the permanence of what God has done when we turn to him. Did you know that there are no erasers and whiteout in heaven? Did you know that? When your name is recorded in the book of remembrance, there is not a way in which it's gone back and erased or crossed out. There is no delete button in, in heaven. When your name is recorded in the book of remembrance or the book of life, it is there for all eternity. It reminds us that God does not forget His own, and He will act on their behalf. This text tells us that there are two main things that are characterized that characterize the people whose names are written in this book of remembrance. The first is this. Number one, they fear the Lord. Number two, they esteem His name. These two phrases work together to show us that they have a high regard for God and that His, or high regard for God and His character and attributes. Notice that these people are not known for loving the gifts that God gives, but that they love God for who He is. You see, true believers value God as their most prized possession. And in turn, the Lord calls these people His most treasured possession. 
Now, now this has to like permeate your mind and your heart and your soul. That when God talks about his children, he doesn't talk about us as like children who need to be seen and not heard, who need to be pushed off into another room and not paid attention to. But instead, he calls us, listen to this, because if you're a believer, he's talking about you. He calls you his treasured possession. This is not in the sense of necessarily ownership, but loving, covenantal relationship. This idea was first used for the nation of Israel back in Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 5. This passage, that tells, this passage tells us that the Exodus out of captivity in Egypt was part of bringing them out of slavery into covenantal relationship with Him. And in the process of doing that, the Lord is making them His treasured possession. What this means is that He, he used His power to bring about the plagues, to part the Red Sea, to free them from slavery, all to show them how much He treasured them. And not only are they His treasured possession, but He says He plans to treat them like a son who serves Him that He will spare them. Literally, He will show mercy on them. One of the most beautiful pictures of, of this particular idea is in Exodus chapter 2, verse 6. If you remember the story of Moses, uh, during the time of Moses, all of the male children were executed. And so, in an effort to protect Moses, his mother put him in a basket made of reeds and floated him down the Nile. And without... God's provision, this helpless baby would have died. But instead, God brings about Pharaoh's daughter, who had mercy upon, who spared the life of Moses by taking him out of the river and making him her son. Friends, this is a beautiful picture of what God does for us. Without Him intervening in our lives through the person and work of Jesus Christ, we were all doomed to death and separation from Him. But instead, God has reached down and had mercy upon us. The text calls these children those who serve Him. Now, if you're familiar with Genesis, Genesis chapter 2 verse 15 tells us that mankind's original purpose was to serve God by working the garden that God created. He, he created the world and put man in it to work the garden as an act of worship. But since sin has entered into the world, mankind has been rejecting this call to serve God and has chosen to worship lesser gods. And the main God that mankind, that humankind has chosen to worship is the God of self. But is there anything more beautiful than a child who seeks to serve the parents that gave them life and cared for them? How much more beautiful is it when we serve the God who not only gives us physical life, but the God who gives us spiritual life as well? But the Lord once and for all speaks to these hard words brought against him. 
Remember, they accused God of not punishing evil. But here in this text, he speaks of a time when the righteous and the wicked will be separated. But he tells them that there's a way to tell the difference between the righteous and the wicked now. The righteous will see God as their most prized possession and will get busy serving Him, not because of the gifts that He gives, but because of who God is. The name and character of God matters now, and listen to these words, because it is the fuel that feeds the faithful service of the righteous. The name and character of God matters now because it is the fuel that feeds the faithful service of the righteous. But the name and character of God means nothing to the wicked. It will not motivate them to service. And because they don't care about His character, they can't be motivated to serve Him even by His coming judgment. Verse 18 reminds us of the day in which the judgment of God will come, and the righteous and the wicked will be separated for eternity. God will punish sin, and He will reward those who follow Him. But I want to go back to this idea of being spared. I want to take a few moments to just review this particular idea, because I think this idea of being spared actually reveals how much God truly loves us. And I want to do this with the goal of helping you endure now. And I want you to turn over to the, the book of Romans real quick. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Because there, there's this tension in this particular passage. There's this tension of people who are facing difficulty because they've chosen to not serve God and are now suffering the consequences of that. But we know that the Scriptures also talk about a group of people who suffer because they're righteous. And no matter what category that you find yourself in today, if you're facing difficulty because you're pursuing God and your life is hard, or if you've sought to serve God to get something from Him and it's not working out like you hope it would, I want you to see what's happening in Romans chapter 8 to, to come back to who God actually is. Romans chapter 8 verse 18 says this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. We read passages like this, and we might be tempted to say, Lord, what I am facing right now is really hard, and, and I'm not sure that I can keep going through this suffering. I'm looking forward to the glory that will be revealed, but that, that seems far away. It seems like sometime way distant in the future when your glory will be revealed. And so, I, I want to encourage you, what do you hold on to now? I think you can still obviously hold on to this glory that's coming, but what maybe feels more tangible at this moment? Look down just a few verses. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 32. Now, remember, we're discussing this idea of what it means to be spared. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, 
Who can be against us? And so, like, immediately there should start to be this sense that you can keep going, that there isn't any suffering, there isn't any struggle in your life that will actually separate you from God, but instead He'll be there to, to empower you. But look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with us graciously give us all things? Listen to these words. You are being spared and allowed to continue in this life and the next because God loves us so much he didn't spare his son Jesus, but instead he gave him up as the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. Jesus wasn't spared, so you and I can be spared. You can keep going because Christ has already went all the way to the cross for us. As we've done in the last several vers uh, sermons, I, I want to continue to take these heavy theological truths and boil them down into everyday living. And we've done this through the lens of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. In your notes, if you have a copy of the notes, you'll see that I've introduced four major doctrines that I think are in this particular pass passage, or, or maybe even in this case, one heresy and three doctrines. But I think the four main things that are being discussed in this passage are legalism, the inescapable judgment of God, the love of God for his children, and the separation of the righteous and the wicked. And let me encourage you, I'm not putting these in here just for you to gloss over them, but hopefully you would spend some time meditating on what these doctrines actually are. Because all of us have some portion of our thinking that needs corrected. It might shock you to, to know this, but I don't have perfect theology. Did you know that? That every one of us is going to die with some sort of heresy because we're not Jesus. Now, I think I'm, I'm pretty close. Maybe I need to grow in humility, but I think my doctrine is, is pretty close. But we always need to be sorting through what we believe and what may have snuck in the back door of our minds to lead us astray. And one of the ways that we need to do that is to constantly evaluate our thinking on where it needs to be corrected. So let me, let me pose this question to you because I think it's potentially one of the most important questions out of this text. Let me ask you, why do you serve and follow God? Are you doing it because of the gifts that He gives? Or because He is so majestic in your mind you have almost no choice but to follow Him. Are you seeking to be obedient to God and serve Him so that He will give you some sort of prosperity in this life? Or have you come to recognize that there is no greater purpose, there is no greater majesty that you could live for than God Himself? Born out of this, though, is the second question I'd like to pose to you. The question is this, what do, what do I, what do you think about when you think about God's name? 
Meaning, what, what do you think about God? How do you conceptualize Him in your mind? Because just as I said before, if we're going to strive to serve God for the right reasons, we have to have a right view of God to motivate us to serve Him correctly. We move then from doctrine and thinking to behavior, to reproof. The question I think you can ask here is, am I living like a legalist? Am I, in a certain area of my life, working to serve God, expecting something in return? And this can take on any number of different forms. For many of us, this thing that we're after changes based on the stage of life that we're in. Some of us are starting to think about retirement and what it will look like. And if we just serve the Lord hard enough now, we'll be able to relax because He'll bless us later. Or, or if I just serve the Lord now, He will give me a perfect marriage or a perfect children. This is a question that you have to pose to your own life. You have to actually do the work of, of taking a look of where you may be serving God, expecting something in return. But one of the ways to, to correct our behavior is to correct our thinking. You see, if we're going to move away from living as a legalist, we, we must move towards living with future realities in mind. That the life that we're living now shouldn't be lived in anticipation of blessing in this life, but the reward in the next. That our main goal is to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, and be given rewards in heaven that we will then give back to God as worship to Him. Let me suggest to you that as Christians, this way of living, this way of thinking needs to become normal for us, that we would live in such a way that has that future reality in mind. But for both those who would claim to be Christians and those who would not, there is a reality of coming judgment that should motivate us both. Brothers and sisters, we should be encouraged, motivated, to evangelism, knowing that everybody is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That people that you love, people that you know, people in your neighborhood are going to die, and they're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And the only way that they pass that judgment seat is by the, the blood of Jesus Christ atoning for their sins. If they attempt to stand before the, the judgment seat of Christ without His blood, they will spend eternity separated from Him in hell. Th this should invigorate us and motivate us to evangelize the lost world around us, especially this week when, when people are thinking about Thanksgiving and being together with family. Uh, we have several tracks that, that are available at the back that are Thanksgiving-oriented that are so easy to take with you and put in someone's hand when you're waiting in line at the store to get your turkey or whatever you're buying this week. But it's this judgment that should motivate us to do things like that. 
Then the, then the final portion that we, we've looked at in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is this idea that we should be instructed in righteousness. And let me say to you that one of the main things that we often miss in the Scriptures is not necessarily a command to do anything other than to sit down and just meditate on who God is. That, that maybe the best application, the best instruction I can give you this week is to spend significant time meditating on God's name and character, to meditate on His love for His treasured possession and His hatred for evil. And I want to challenge you to, to actually take 15 minutes a day to set aside specifically for meditating on who God is, that, that you would just stop and think about the character and attributes of God, how much He loves you, and how much He hates evil. And then let the, the living, the application grow out of that. But I want to encourage you, too, to take a practical step to root out legalism. One of the easiest ways, I think, to do this is to ask yourself this question. Is there anything in my life that I will sin to get or sin if I don't get it. And whatever that thing is, that thing is the object of your false worship. It is the object of your legalism. And when you identify what that is, and, and maybe it's several things, I'm encouraging you to just identify one. Give it to the Lord. Trust Him with whatever it is. Stop trying to earn His favor to get this thing that you desire, but instead enjoy the fact that God calls you His treasured possession, that, that He loves you more than you could imagine. I hope as we come to a close in this particular study that, that there is this sense of hope that is being built even from this point that in a world that seems hopeless, there is hope that comes through God Himself. That there are many people who are going to celebrate this week things that they are thankful for, but the only true thing to be ultimately thankful for is God's love for us that's been ministered to us through Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you to meditate on these things this week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we are thankful for this truth that even though we have sinned against you in the past, even though that we will sin against you in the future, that you still love us, that you still treasure us, that you still give us opportunity to turn from you. Lord, I pray if there is anyone who is here today or is listening online, that if they don't know you as their Savior, that today would be the day that they would see your love for them through the person and work of Jesus Christ and turn from them, their sin and turn to you. But Lord, we, we ask that you would help us as your children, those who have put their faith and trust in you, Jesus, that you would renew in us a vision of what you're like 
that we would see you high and lifted up, that we would see that you loved us so much that you didn't spare your own son, but instead gave him up as a ransom for our sins. And out of that today, the rest of the week, the rest of this year, and the rest of our lives be completely and solely dedicated to you. Lord, there are so many ways in which we could express our, our adoration for you, express how amazed we are with, with who you are, but help us to not get so busy as we enter into this holiday season that we don't stop to, to meditate on who you are and think deeply about what you're like. Lord, for those who are here today that are facing significant struggles in their life, may they be emboldened and, and renewed by knowing that you, the God of the universe, care for them and that you hear them and they can cry out to you and that you are their present help in time of need. Lord, help us to be a beacon of, of hope, a beacon of light in the world around us, not for our benefit, but for your name only. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Please feel free to share this message, but remember, don't charge for it or change it. The Lord's message should be free and for everyone.